Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science, so let's get started. Today's show is special. We're rebroadcasting a panel discussion that was held at an all-day conference on food justice on October 5th, 2019. The conference was put on by a group of Louisville activists known as Sowers of Justice. And if you regularly listen to this radio station, WFMP 106.5 FM here in Louisville, you might have already heard several of the other talks and discussions from the Food Justice Conference. You would have heard it on this station's show called Solutions to Violence, hosted by Jim Johnson and Jamie McMillan. Jim was at the conference all day, recorded most of it, and they've been rebroadcasting it on their show, Solutions to Violence. So if you want to hear any of these, check out their podcast page at forwardradio.org slash solutions to violence. Forwardradio.org slash solutions to violence. Anyway, they and the Sowers of Justice have kindly allowed us to rebroadcast one of the panel discussions that day. Now, this one was a group of farmers from Kentucky, and they spoke about the state of agriculture in Kentucky right now and where we've been and where we could be going. Now, the first voice you'll hear in this panel discussion is the moderator, Hank Grady. He's from the Cumberland chapter of the Kentucky Sierra Club. Then you'll hear from Hoppy Hinton, a farmer in Woodford County who's also a member of the Kentucky Tobacco Research Board. After that, it'll be Nelson Escobar, a farmer in Prospect, Kentucky, who originally immigrated to the U.S. from El Salvador, where he managed a farmer cooperative there. Now he's a founder of Laminga Farm, which is a group of beginning farmers specializing in growing ethnic vegetables of Latin American origin. Then we'll hear from Maddie Barrett-Keith, the fourth-generation steward of Fox Hollow Farm, a biodynamic farm near Crestwood, Kentucky, which specializes in raising 100% grass-fed beef. After that, you'll hear Mary Berry, the executive director of the Berry Center in Henry County, Kentucky. The Berry Center is a nonprofit organization devoted to advocating for farmers, land conservation, and healthy rural economies. The sixth member of this panel was noted author, cultural critic, and farm advocate Wendell Berry. Since there won't be enough time to play his remarks on this particular episode, we'll broadcast Wendell Berry's remarks on the next episode of Bench Talk, so keep an eye out for it. So let's get going. Let's hear what this diverse group of farmers has to say about food, agriculture, and the rural economy. Now, although there isn't a lot of natural science discussed by this panel, I thought it was a nice blend of history, sociology, economics, agricultural policy, and social justice. And I do need to remind you that our radio station, WFMP 106.5 FM, does not endorse the opinions expressed on our various radio shows. I think of our station as providing an educational service. And to be blunt, I actually didn't agree with all the viewpoints expressed by this panel, but 
I think it's still worthwhile to think about them and discuss them openly. Maybe there will be time at the end of the show next week to ruminate over some of the more controversial aspects of this panel discussion, but in the meantime, let's hear from these farmers. There are some of us who believe that in a discussion of food justice, uh, it is essential for that discussion to hear from farmers, and that that discussion must include a discussion of justice for farmers and justice for the farmland. I had the pleasure of being able to introduce a panel and get out of the way, uh, but I want to introduce all of them and then start pointing to the ones that will speak next. 42 years ago, Wendell began this discussion with the publication of Unsettling of America and called the nation's attention to the injustice that the industrial agricultural system works on farmers and farmland. And he has been delivering that message in various forms of writing ever since. His daughter, Mary, at the Berry Center, was formed to help archive, record Wendell's her father's works, her uncle's works, and her grandfather's works. The legacy of the Berry family argument for a just farming system that properly compensates farmers and takes care of the farmland. But we need more than the Berries uh, to make this presentation. That's right. So we are honored to have uh, Maggie Keith, a fourth generation steward at Fox Hollow Farm, a biodynamic farm community in Crestwood, Kentucky, raising 100% grass-fed beef. In 2006, Maggie and her mother led the charge to convert their family's farmland from a three-crop rotational farm to a grass-fed beef farm selling direct to consumers. She serves on the board of Dare to Care Food Bank and is co-host on a radio and television show, The Farmer and the Foodie. We're also honored to have Nelson Escobar. La Minga Farm was started by Nelson, an El Salvadorian, who wanted to bring the farming traditions of his homeland with him when he immigrated to the United States. Farmers at La Minga work cooperatively. Each of the 12 farmers is responsible for a few of the crops, and everyone helps out when it comes time to harvest. Nelson believes strongly in the power of cooperative work, in some South American countries, a traditional organization based on cooperative work is also called Aminga. Mm -hmm. uh, and finally, last but not least, is the new political commentator in Kentucky, <laughs> Hoppy Hinton, who, if you watch TV, hopefully you've seen his observations about our current governor. But in his earlier career, uh, he has farmed uh, in Whitford County uh, uh, land that has, has been in the family for many years, many generations, uh, and he's a friend. Although, we drove down together, and I'm not quite sure what he's going to say. Uh, be, prepared, <laughs> be prepared for anything. Um, those are panelists. Um, in fact, I am going to start with Hoppy, and I'll let Hoppy... Hoppy is capable, and I think he's willing, to explain 
how the current system tracks farmers into a certain kind of agriculture and how hard it is to extricate from it. I think that is what he's going to talk about, but again, we don't know. <laughs> Thank you, Hank. I will try to behave myself. I told you to lunch, I would do that. It's maybe difficult to do. Um, beside what Hank has said, let me, I, the farm that I'm on, which is where I live, is a farm that's been in our family for a long time. Uh, it's gone out of the family during the Depression. I've bought part of it back. It's kind of been a, uh, a journey to keep all that going. But uh, I'm the ninth generation farmer on the same land in Woodford County. And the manager of our farm is not me, he's my daughter. And so she's now the manager, although she just had twins and another baby, so we have to kind of manage around her schedule. But uh, she does make the payroll, and that's a good thing to do these days. The, the journey on agriculture and how it fits into farming and then in the term food is one that I'm, I find mysterious. Uh, because I told Hank earlier, and I've told several, while I've been in agriculture and farmer for a long time, have a bit of education in agriculture, I don't raise food. I've raised food, but I don't raise food now. And yet, in our operation, we're farming uh, several thousand acres of cropland. We've raised a lot, we have cattle operation, we raise tobacco, we raise corn, soybeans, wheat, barley for malting occasionally wheat from milling occasionally, still, still do some of this. We have a small plot of hemp that we raise for seed production. It's not a hemp for use except this next year's crop. So we're involved in a number of crop operations and have been doing this for a while. In the interim of all of this, I have, in addition to being on farm organizations, I have worked for a short period of time for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And so I do have some policy aspects of what goes on with the USDA. I was a director of what's called the Farm Service Agency in Kentucky for a while during the Clinton administration. And interestingly, during that period of time, is when the tobacco program was still in existence. So as the discussion comes up, maybe today and forever, about a supply management system, and as Mary and I have talked several times, you know, to make a supply management system work, you need a federal intervention and a program involved, so I have some intricate knowledge of how that works and what made it work. And interestingly enough, when I got the job of USDA, I think the person who was most likely to have made that nomination was your brother. And I'm not sure that you know that, but John certainly made that happen. So I, I do have several things about him that I don't know. <laughs> I think he wanted you to stop bothering him. <laughs> it could well be the case. It could well be the case. So I don't want to take a whole lot of time in this situation, but the basic premise is that while we do raise a lot of agricultural products, while we've been involved in agriculture for a long time, I don't know anything about food. And most farmers don't raise food. We raise commodities. You may have calves. You may have wheat. You may have soy. You may have corn. We have very little contact with anything that has to do with food justice. I'm not saying that from a good or a bad standpoint, it's just a reality. And the USDA programs, for the most part, which I helped administer for a while and I take advantage of, don't encourage me or my colleagues to do anything about food particularly. It's about agriculture. And we were just talking a little while ago, we've had an extreme drought in central Kentucky. It's been extremely hot. 
We've had 95 degree temperatures consistently until yet, I guess, till yesterday. Yeah. Um, and yet, on our operation, nobody really noticed that because we're operating in air conditioned comfort. I don't have a single machine that doesn't have an air conditioner on it. And when the air conditioner goes out, we stop farming, so we fix it. <laughs> I'm not saying that's good at all. So we're kind of immune to some of those kinds of things. Now, I don't have an irrigation system that works in any great thing, but what most farmers do is, well, I'll just fix that. I'll buy an irrigation system next year so I can, I can water the hills and it can grow. So all of that being said, I hope I can contribute something to this conversation, and I thank Hank that'd be my, be my five minutes. Unless you have something else I need to add to this. Well, at this point, you can pass the microphone down to Nelson. Yeah, I say uh, thank you to the organizers of this uh, conference. The farmers try to grow everything by themselves. If, this, if they have families, just the family help. So the other thing, the small farmer, is low value. You know, the is one of the problems uh, uh, for the small farmer and local food is the people from the field don't value the big, big importance that the local food means. So because the people from the city are, are, are looking at the price, not the general value that the uh, food and especially local food uh, means. So if one of the um, solution from the farmer is the add value, not just to sell the, the produce. We are seeing in Kentucky the small farmer have low add value uh, work. So uh, the other thing that, that we are seeing in Kentucky is too much competition between farmers. So we, are, uh, we have experience with uh, maybe eight or ten farmer market in different places in the area. It's, it's, it's really sad to see that the how, as a farmer, we compete for the prices, we compete for the customer, etc. And uh, uh, the competition is too bad. The other thing, the uh, customer are looking just price and quality, but quality means presentation. Because sometimes, I don't know, it's funny when I, I, oh, I saw that at the farmer market, the, uh, some kind of uh, heirloom uh, tomatoes, and the people call it ugly tomatoes. Oh my goodness, because they look ugly, but it's the best, the best of nutrition tomato. And if the people don't, don't care about it, they have the presentation. Maggie, you're on. Thank you. I'm Maggie with Fox Hollow Farm. And I must say, when I first started, I had no agriculture background and no farming background. I had a deep appreciation for nature and earth and the land. And that's what my grandmother and my mother gave to me as a great gift. But I didn't have someone to look up to to really teach me how to farm our farmland. I'm fourth generation, but I'm the first generation to actually farm our farmland. We'd always leased it out to other farmers. So coming into it, I was very naive. And I think that's what led me to not look to what the conventional systems were doing and to look towards how would I do it my way? How would we do it in the best possible way to heal the land? So that's how we got to cattle. And that's how we ended up raising 100% grass-fed beef. 
And when I first started, I also, I didn't have many failures in life. I was 21 years old and no experience. And I thought I could do anything. And (laughs) I hit the ground running and found that I could sell beef. I could have this appreciation for food and growing food. And my passion for my family's land allowed me to just never give up and to try to come up with a system and a business that could sustain the land, but also financially sustain my business on the farm. Started off doing a lot of wholesale selling of meat and now quickly discovered that in order to pay a fair price for the cattle that we're raising, I needed to be able to sell my meat at a higher price. And so that's how I got to mostly direct to consumer. And it's a lot of work and it's a lot of marketing and a lot of sales and a lot of work beyond just being out in the pastures. And so I'm very curious as to how we can come up with systems that are beyond just my farm. I'm figuring out how to make a business work on the 1,300 acres of land that I'm stewarding. But one thing that was constantly bugging me as I was doing this is how can this scale? How can we create these systems that can work for other farmers and on other farmland? Because we have incredible cattlemen and cattlewomen throughout our state. And I'm very interested in making sure that we come up with systems that can pay fair prices and um, also allow farms and businesses to thrive. So luckily, I became friends with Mary, (laughs) and um, she's come up, the Berry Center has come up with an incredible program that's helping farmers, and so I'm going to pass it on to Mary now. Thank you, Maggie. And thank you all. Um, I started the Berry Center in 2011 after a lifetime of farming. I had farmed for a living as an adult, uh, well, since I kind of came home to farm when I was 22 until I started the Berry Center. I farmed, um, we raised tobacco, we had a dairy, I raised under the federal tobacco, um, a crop under the federal program. To make ends meet, uh, to do the kinds of things we wanted to do, we also became entrepreneurial farmers as the years went by. My husband and I, who, my husband's name is Steve Smith, um, he started the first community-supported agriculture farm in Kentucky. He and I talk often about this food system that we thought, as young farmers, we were working toward because we heard about it all the time. Uh, Several things inspired me to start the uh, Berry Center One of which was the fact that in 2011, we were no closer to a local food system than we had been when I was a 22-year-old coming back to Henry County to farm. Since starting the Berry Center, I have traveled a good deal to speak as an advocate for small farmers and for their communities. It has seemed necessary to me to tell um, audiences who are our urban constituency that we're grateful to have, no question. I mean, I was an entrepreneurial farmer, as Maggie is. We needed those people, and um, those people made my husband CSA work. Um, We're grateful for that. But somehow, um, as time has gone by, people have begun to think in urban places that something's happening out in farm country that is just simply not happening. 
So in 2011, I went to my father and said, and in spite of a 40-year local food movement, things are getting worse, not better. We have two options for farmers. They can be small and entrepreneurial or large and industrial with almost nothing in the middle. The tobacco program, which worked for this state and other states in the Burley Belt for 60-something years, something like that, hobby, had been, instead of studied, instead of replicated, forgotten. Uh, I think because of the stigma of tobacco, in part. I think um, also because it flies in the face of some of the principles of the free market, which hasn't worked for farmers. So I said, we need to, we need to study it. We need to work on education for young people who want to farm, um, and on and on. Daddy said, it sounds like you're starting a center, and I had, had no intention of starting a center, it never even occurred to me, and so I um, started a center, because I virtually always do what my father tells me. Um, well, it's, it's actually kind of true. I do it ha more happily now than when I was 16. Um, so I think for the, for the business of this meeting, I, I want to talk a little about the far, the program, one of the four programs at the Berry Center um, is a beef program. It's called Our Home Place Meat. We're working with 10 young farmers to produce a product called Rose Veal. Our intention for that program is that it work toward being a cooperative. I don't know how long that will take, and I'm perfectly happy having some money subsidize this effort. Um, for a while, but we're trying to build the cooperative mentality with our farmers, we're trying to, to learn how to communicate effectively with them. As long as uh, cattle prices are low, which they are right now, our farmers are going to be very happy to um, work with us at $1.80 a pound. If beef prices rise, then we've got to have communicated well enough with our farmers to keep them working with us. We're saying, you're going to trade your right to gamble for stability. That's what uh, we've got to have for our farmers if we're going to value them. So this idea of parity pricing comes in. The idea that farmers ought to um, get back cost of production and keep a little money. Now that is the simplest by far the simplest definition of parity. And parity is problematic, and I'll get to that in a minute, and then Hoppy can tell me why I'm wrong. <laughs> but um, we started with beef cattle because that's where the good farming culture still is in Kentucky, I think. Beef cattle, um, most of the herds in Kentucky are small. I think the average uh, herd is 27 mother cows, something like that. That's small farming, and it fits our marginal farmland. And as my grandfather said many years ago, um, you can make money with grass. This state grows good grass, not at the moment, but um, if it rains, it will come back. So we are, I, I want to say just a word about what we've seen with the young farmers that we're working with. These are, ex with, for the most part, generational farmers. For the most part, if I'd gone to these farmers and said, you know, I need you to raise a healthy product for people that's low in fat and doesn't have any of the bad stuff in it, and we need you to sequester carbon and so on, I would have lost them immediately. But now we're beginning to have a group of farmers who are getting together at the Berry Center and other places to talk about forage health and genetics and uh, what we need to do to get the product that our home place meat needs. 
this is a dream come true to see this happen with these farmers who for the most part are working other jobs for the right to farm. Parity though needs to be coupled with uh, supply management. Overproduction is a huge problem for uh, farming now. And I think, as I think Nelson said, um, I think our entrepreneurial farmers are overproducing even as small as they are. They're competing with each other. They're competing with organics in the grocery store. So the time has come that we've got to decide, do we care about our people or are we going to take care of our people and our land or are we not? And we have to think. We have to use our imaginations. We have to get to the root of these problems, not just deal up here looking down at them. So I mentioned a problem with parity, uh, and I just want to throw this out because I don't know the answer to it. But I'm going to use here a little piece that my father quoted in a book of his called The Thoughts of, well, an essay called The Thoughts of Limits in a, Prod- in a Prodigal Age. He's quoting from um, a letter that a friend of ours uh, named John Logan Brent, who is the judge executive of Henry County, sent to him about getting into farming now as a young person, cattle farming. Daddy begins this by saying the doctrine of too many farmers, which was official doctrine for many years, has never been revoked. No limit to the attrition has been proposed. And I'm going to quote from John Logan's letter. I have taken a couple of afternoons to work on the accounting for farming cattle under the current terms. Enclosed you will find that product based upon a real example, which is our 100-acre farm, and it's approximately 25 cow herd. The good news is that for a young man wishing to earn a middle to slightly below middle class annual salary of $45,000, farming cattle full-time, he only has to have $3,281,000 in capital to get started. If he can find 780 acres to rent, he only has to have $551,000 for used cows and equipment. I say this is the good news because the reality is that this was based on a weaned calf price of $850 from June of this year. According to today's sales reports, that same calf is now worth $650 at best. This was written in, in 2016. I believe that $600 to $650 is probably right for today. So this has to be considered in this talk of how parts of our cities and our countryside, I think Henry County, Kentucky is a food desert. Um, if you don't have enough gas to fill up your car, you can't even get bad food. So um, I think we need to, this has to be a part of, uh, of our consideration of what we talk about, if we're going to talk about the whole problem and not just pieces of it. That was a panel discussion of farmers held at the Food Justice Conference put on by the Swords of Justice in October of 2019. You heard from Hank Grady, Nelson Escobar, Maddie Barrett-Keith, and Mary Berry. We'll listen to the second half of this panel discussion, which features famous author and thinker Wendell Berry, on the next episode of Bench Talk. Well, that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, the week in science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. You can also email us at benchtalkradio at gmail.com. That's one word, benchtalkradio at gmail.com. 
Now, all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud, so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives. That's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m. That's Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday, and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMPLP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.